وَهُوَ الَّذِي كَفَّ أَيْدِيَهُمْ عَنْكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ عَنْهُمْ بِبَطْنِ مَكَّةَ مِنْ بَعْدِ أَنْ أَذْفَرَكُمْ عَلَيْهِمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرًا هُمُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَصَدُّوكُمْ عَنِ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ وَالْهَدْيَ مَعَكُوفًا أَنْ يَبْلُغَ مَحِلَّهِ وَلَوْ لَا رِجَالٌ مُؤْمِنُونَ وَنِسَاءٌ مُؤْمِنَاتٌ لَمْ تَعْلَمُوهُمْ أَنْ تَتَعُوهُمْ فَتُصِيبَكُمْ مِنْهُمْ مَعْرَرَةٌ بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ لِيُرْخِلَ اللَّهُ فِي رَحْمَتِهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ لَوْ تَزَيَّلُوا لَعَذَّبَنَا الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْهُمْ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا And it is he who withheld their hands from you and your hands from them within the area of Mecca after he caused you to overcome them. And ever is the law of what you do all-seeing. They are the ones who disbelieved and obstructed you from al-Masjid al-Haram while the offering was prevented from reaching its place of sacrifice. And if not for believing men and believing women whom you did not know, that you might trample them, and there would befall you because of them dishonor without your knowledge, that Allah might admit to his mercy whom he willed. If they had been apart from them, he would have punished those who disbelieved among them with a painful punishment. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6-10, The 80s and 90s. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Six-Day War triples Israel's size but also puts millions of Palestinian refugees under their authority. Forced out of Jordan, the PLO and other Palestinian militant organizations relocate to Lebanon. President Anwar Sadat of Egypt becomes the first Arab leader to normalize relations with Israel. Shah Riza Pahlavi flees into exile and a Shiite Islamic Republic takes over in Iran. The Lebanese civil war intensifies involving various powers from across the globe. And with that, let's take a look at how things are shaping up in this new decade. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast, and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level, plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com.
www.thepurpleshow.com. A New Decade The 70s was a decade of turmoil, war, economic crisis, and revolutions. It marked the beginning of the Lebanese Civil War, the rise of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and a Shiite Islamic theocracy in Iran. By all accounts, this was one of the most difficult and turbulent decades in Middle Eastern history. The 80s picked up right where the 70s left off. It began in 1980 when President Saddam Hussein of Iraq launched a surprise war against Iran a few months after its revolution. Iran and Iraq had disputed for several years over shipping access in the Persian Gulf, but these disputes had never escalated to war. Now, with Iran weakened after two years of protests and a new government, Saddam Hussein decided to strike. This would be the first of many miscalculations by Saddam Hussein. Though he did not know it at the time, he had just opened the door to decades of U.S. intervention in the Middle East. A year later, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was shot and killed by assassins during a military parade. He was succeeded by his vice president, Hosni Mubarak, who would remain president for the next 30 years. Sabra and Shatila Things were still pretty bad in Lebanon. In June 1982, Palestinian militants attacked and killed Israel's ambassador to Great Britain in London. Even though the assassins were not associated with the PLO, Israel used this as an excuse to invade southern Lebanon again. Israeli Defense Minister Ariel Sharon led IDF forces into Lebanon using an assortment of weaponry including hundreds of tanks, artillery, warplanes, and attack helicopters. The PLO, on the other hand, was mostly armed with light weapons. The IDF was victorious and the remnants of the PLO, including Yasser Arafat, fled to Tunisia. This bloody victory earned Ariel Sharon the nickname Butcher of Beirut. Furthermore, with the PLO fighters gone, the Palestinian refugees left behind in Lebanon were now vulnerable. The Lebanese civil war between Christians and Muslims was still going on. Since most Palestinians were Muslim, they generally sided with the Lebanese Muslims. In September of 1982, Christian phalangist militias attacked two Palestinian refugee camps called Sabra and Shatila near Beirut. The Israeli military was nearby and aware of the slaughter, but did nothing to intervene. Nearly 3,000 Palestinian men, women, and children were killed by the phalangists. News of the massacres shocked the world and Israel begrudgingly convened a commission to determine responsibility. In February 1983, the Kahan Commission submitted its report stating the phalangists were directly responsible for the atrocities at Sabra and Shatila. The report also stated the Israeli military was indirectly responsible 
and found Defense Minister Ariel Sharon personally responsible. Finally, the report recommended Ariel Sharon's dismissal. A few months later, Israel signed a peace agreement with Lebanon. In the aftermath of Sabra and Shatila, the United States, Britain, France, and Italy agreed to deploy forces to Lebanon to maintain peace and bolster the faltering Lebanese government. But then, in October 1983, a truck filled with explosives slammed into the Marine barracks in Beirut. 307 people were killed, including 286 U.S. Marines. By 1984, most of the multinational forces, including those from the United States, had withdrawn from Lebanon. Though they were replaced by U.N. peacekeeping forces, the fighting in Lebanon continued. The First Intifada Israel continued its war against the PLO. In 1985, Israeli warplanes attacked PLO headquarters in Tunis, killing about 50 people. PLO-affiliated militants retaliated by conducting several simultaneous attacks. In Egypt, militants hijacked an Italian cruise ship, resulting in the death of one Jewish American. At nearly the exact same time, gunmen opened fire at the Rome and Vienna airports, killing 19 people. The PLO never officially sanctioned these attacks, and Yasser Arafat later denied all responsibility. Nonetheless, most of the world held the PLO at least partly responsible. The PLO was far away in Tunisia and in complete disarray following multiple Israeli attacks. The leadership vacuum forced the Palestinian struggle to change shape, becoming a local, grassroots affair. It also took on a more religious undertone, a stark departure from the secular ideology of the PLO. The first intifada began in 1987 when an Israeli military truck collided with a civilian van killing four Palestinians. The Israeli government declared it an accident. Nonetheless, protests, demonstrations, and general civil disobedience erupted throughout the West Bank and Gaza. Israel responded by sending 80,000 troops into the Palestinian areas. This resulted in violent clashes between Palestinian youths armed with bricks, stones, and Molotov cocktails and Israeli soldiers armed with military weapons and live ammunition. 332 Palestinians were killed in the first 13 months alone, mostly children and teenagers. This intifada, which means shaking off, would last six years and lead to the formation of the group known as Hamas. By the time the Intifada ended, nearly 1,200 Palestinians would be killed by the IDF with an additional 30,000 injured. The Intifada led to several peace initiatives around the world. Within Israel, a growing number of Israelis were tiring of the perpetual conflict with the Arabs. Some of them began to organize into humanitarian organizations. One such organization is Hamoked, founded in 1988 and dedicated to assisting Palestinians with humanitarian needs. Another is Betaselem, founded in 1989 and dedicated to documenting Israeli violations of Palestinian human rights. The PLO was also growing weary of the violence. 
The Palestinian National Council officially denounced terrorism while Yasser Arafat announced the PLO's recognition of Israel as a state. At the same time, the PLO also declared the independent state of Palestine. This declaration was acknowledged by the UN, but not accepted as legitimate nor official. Hence, it had no practical standing. In January 1989, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak called for an end to the Intifada and peace talks between all parties. A few months later, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir provided a framework for peace. Not to be outdone, Hosni Mubarak submitted his own 10-point peace plan. The following month, U.S. Secretary of State James Baker provided a 5-point peace plan. In 1990, Saudi Arabia brokered the Ta'if Agreement, bringing the devastating Lebanese civil war to an end. Muslims and Christians agreed to share equal representation in the government. The Muslim prime minister was given more authority, and most of the militias laid down their weapons. Hezbollah became something like a government within a government in southern Lebanon. But all of these peace initiatives got put on hold when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Operation Gulf Storm When Saddam Hussein invaded Iran in 1979, he thought it was going to be a cakewalk. Iran was still reeling from two years of protests and rioting, and its new government was weak and untested. Furthermore, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, took a hard stance against Israel and the United States, calling them Little Satan and Big Satan, respectively. He also sanctioned the kidnapping of 52 American citizens stuck in Iran after the revolution. Iran would wind up holding these Americans hostage for over 400 days. The United States retaliated by implementing sanctions and an arms embargo against Iran. Despite the chaos caused by the revolution, Iran still had a respectable military. Before the revolution, Iran had one of the best militaries in the region. Iran's military hardware and personnel did not leave with the Shah. But with the sanctions and arms embargo, Iran would have a hard time replacing their weapons and machinery. It comes as no surprise the United States supported Saddam Hussein against Iran. The U.S. sent billions of dollars in foreign aid to Iraq, including intelligence, military training, and agricultural goods. There's even a photo of Donald Rumsfeld, special envoy to the Middle East representing the Reagan administration, shaking hands with Saddam Hussein in 1983. But at the same time, neither the U.S. nor Israel wanted Iraq to conquer and occupy Iran and take over its oil capabilities. As the war dragged on, Iran began to deplete its weapons stockpile. The U.S. had to find a way to supply Iran its avowed enemy, with weapons to use against Iraq, its sort of ally. Here's how it worked. Officials within the Reagan administration convinced Israel to secretly sell weapons to Iran. Iran did not want it known it was dealing with Israel, and Israel did not want it known it was violating the arms embargo. The United States took the money from these transactions to fund rebels in Nicaragua. These rebels, known as Contras, 
were trying to overthrow the socialist, Soviet-leaning Sandinista government. This scandal became known as the Iran-Contra affair. Saddam Hussein's surprise attack caught the Iranians off guard and vulnerable after the revolution. But the acquisition of these arms helped Iran fight Iraq to a stalemate. In August 1988, the two nations finally agreed to a ceasefire. But eight years of warfare had cost nearly a million lives and left Iraq in severe debt. Since there was no embargo against Iraq, Saddam Hussein could buy all the weapons and materials he needed. He borrowed heavily, often using future oil sales to finance his war machine. By the time the ceasefire was agreed upon, Iraq had the largest land army in the Middle East. But Iraq was also billions of dollars in debt, especially to Kuwait. Saddam Hussein attempted to negotiate a debt relief agreement with Kuwait, but the tiny nation refused to go for it. Kuwait also ruined Saddam's plans to use Iraq's oil revenue to pay off the debt. Saddam Hussein wanted to cut back oil production in order to raise prices and pay the debt off quicker. Kuwait would not play ball and kept pumping out oil in large quantities, thereby maintaining the flow of cheap oil to the West. Saddam Hussein also accused Kuwait of slant drilling. He believed Kuwait was drilling oil from across its border with Iraq. The relationship between the two nations continued to deteriorate until negotiations broke down completely. On August 2, 1990, Saddam Hussein ordered an invasion of Kuwait. This led to Saddam's second miscalculation. He did not expect the United States to get involved militarily. Despite the Iran-Contra scandal, Iraq and the U.S. were practically allies in the war against Iran. He also thought the United States was averse to large military endeavors after its failure in Vietnam. Saddam Hussein could not have been more wrong. Not only did President George H.W. Bush rally the country to expel the Iraqi invaders from Kuwait, he convinced nearly the entire world to join in on the effort. The global military intervention happened in two phases. First, there was Operation Desert Shield. This was the military buildup in the Middle East to prevent a potential Iraqi invasion of Saudi Arabia. And then there was Operation Desert Storm. This was the actual military operation to drive Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. By February 1991, Kuwait was liberated and the Iraqi military was decimated. And with CNN reporters and cameras on the ground and cable TV becoming more ubiquitous, the whole world witnessed America's fancy Cold War-inspired military technology in action. After the war was over, the United States continued to maintain a presence in the Middle East, particularly in military bases in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. The official reasoning was to keep an eye on Saddam Hussein and prevent him from invading any other countries. The United States went on to impose crippling military and financial sanctions against Iraq. The U.S. also enforced a no-fly zone over northern Iraq, which was mostly populated by Kurds, whom Saddam Hussein had persecuted in years past. The Oslo Accords 
With the war in Iraq winding down, the world was once again ready to explore the possibility of peace in Palestine. This led to the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991, sponsored by the United States and the Soviet Union. It was hoped this conference would renew the aborted peace initiatives from before the Gulf War. But the Soviet Union began collapsing later that year and plans changed. The collapse of the USSR also led to an influx of Russian Jewish immigrants to Israel, changing the prerogative for both sides. Despite the chaos in the former Soviet republics, the Madrid Peace Conference did encourage further initiatives culminating with the Oslo Peace Accords in 1993. During these negotiations, which were moderated by President Bill Clinton, both sides discussed various hot-button issues including a future Palestinian state, Jewish settlements, the status of Jerusalem, Palestinian refugees, security, and law and order. The Oslo Accords also called for the creation of a Palestinian authority, which would act as a semi-autonomous government to administer the Palestinian territories, that is, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. In order to maintain security and law and order in these territories, the agreement also specified the creation of a Palestinian police force. Israel also agreed to withdraw from Gaza and Jericho, while both sides agreed to cooperate on economic matters. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat signed the Oslo Peace Agreement on September 13, 1993, marking the end of the Intifada. The following year looked promising with all parties moving forward with their terms of the agreement. Buried within the fine print was an understanding that Israel would erect a security wall along Gaza's border, which it began to do in 1994. That spring, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat signed the Cairo Agreement, which provided additional details on Israeli troop withdrawal from Gaza and Jericho. It also further clarified the transfer of duties to the Palestinian Authority, the limit and jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority, relations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, and transportation between Israeli and Palestinian territories. Two months later, Israeli forces left Gaza and Jericho and the Palestinian police moved in. Encouraged by the peace process, Jordan decided to normalize relations with Israel. In July 1994, Israel and Jordan signed the Washington Declaration, thereby ending hostilities between the two nations. Jordan was only the second Arab nation, Egypt being the first, to sign a peace treaty with Israel. With Iraq subdued, Iran isolated, and the Oslo Accords in progress, it seemed like peace in the Middle East might finally become a reality. All parties were intent on pushing forward with the process. The year ended with Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Even when Hamas killed 22 people in a Tel Aviv bus bombing, the peace process kept moving forward. Hamas The word Hamas means zeal in Arabic. It is formed from the acronym for the group's full name, Harakatul Muqawamatul Islamiyah. This translates to the Islamic Resistance Movement. 
Hamas is essentially the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, originally based in Egypt. It began in late 1987 when members of the Muslim Brotherhood met with Sheikh Ahmed Yassin in Gaza. Ahmed Yassin was a Palestinian Islamic scholar who was also paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair. The first intifada was in full swing when this group of men met to determine how the Muslim Brotherhood could contribute to the Palestinian struggle. The Muslim Brotherhood had always believed Islam and politics worked hand-in-hand, hand, and Hamas adopted the same ideology. From Hamas's perspective, armed resistance and struggle against the Israeli state was an Islamic duty. Unlike the PLO and later the PA, Hamas's ideology was based on Islamic principles. As mentioned in previous episodes, the PLO was a secular umbrella organization and many of its various factions espoused Marxist beliefs that violated Islamic principles. Hamas believed the implementation of Islamic Sharia and Jihad were the only tools to achieve success in Palestine. Additionally, Hamas's original charter rejected any notion of the legitimacy of Israel. While Yasser Arafat, the PLO, Egypt and eventually Jordan all publicly acknowledged Israel's right to exist, Hamas took a much more inflexible approach. Hamas believes that all of Palestine, from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, belongs to Muslims and is a trust from Allah. Any deviation from that stance is sinful and a violation of Islamic law. Hence, Hamas rejected the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords, UN Resolution 242, and all the other attempts to negotiate a permanent peace between Israel and Palestine. According to Hamas, the only path to peace is the destruction of Israel. In the early days of the Intifada, Israel did not pay much attention to Hamas nor its activities. Israel was more concerned with the PLO. In 1991, Hamas created its military wing called the Ezzuddin al-Qassam Brigade, or Al-Qassam Brigade for short. It was named after Sheikh Ezzuddin al-Qassam, a Palestinian freedom fighter from the 1930s who formed a militant organization called the Black Hand. We discussed al-Qassam briefly in episode 6-7. Hamas operates in both Gaza and the West Bank, but Gaza has always been its primary headquarters. Most of its attacks against Israel originated in Gaza. As Israel began building its border wall, Hamas looked for alternative methods including resorting to launching crude rockets over the wall into Israeli territory. Besides Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad is another militant organization with an Islamic ideology. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ, is based in Damascus and was founded in 1981 by Fatih Shikaki, a medical doctor. While Hamas and PIJ share similar ideologies and often collaborate on offensive operations, they are two distinct groups. However, since PIJ is based in Damascus rather than Gaza, it has become more prominent of late. The Unraveling of the Peace Process Not everyone was happy with the Oslo Peace Accords. Many Palestinians, particularly Hamas and PIJ, rejected the whole thing stated it legitimized Israel's occupation. 
In January 1995, a PIJ suicide bomber killed 69 Israeli soldiers at the Beit Lid Junction in eastern Israel. This was PIJ's first attack, though it is speculated they cooperated with Hamas. Later that year, Mossad agents assassinated Fatheh Shekaki in Malta. 40,000 people attended his funeral. Israel and the PLO pushed on with the peace process, signing another agreement reinforcing the terms of the Cairo Agreement of 1994. This new agreement, sometimes called Oslo II, also divided the West Bank into three distinct classifications. Area A was completely under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority. This meant the Palestinian Authority controlled both the civil and security apparatus of these regions. In 1995, this comprised about 3% of the West Bank. Area B was under Palestinian civil authority. However, both Israel and the PA shared security duties. This was about 24% of the West Bank. Area C was completely under Israeli control and jurisdiction. This included all Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. In 1995, this comprised 75% of the West Bank. Just like there were Palestinians who disagreed with the peace process, there were also Israelis who disagreed with it. There were many Israeli hardliners who rejected the idea of negotiating with the PLO and preferred perpetual military action. This faction also rejected any notion of giving up the territory Israel captured during the Six-Day War or any idea of a two-state solution. For this group of Israelis, the only solution to the conflict is the indefinite containment and separation of the Palestinian people. It should be noted that this hardline faction has held power in Israel for much of the past two decades. On November 4, 1995, an Israeli law student named Yigal Amir shot and killed Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Rabin was succeeded by Israel's foreign minister, Shimon Peres, who promised to carry on with the peace process. For a brief period, as Israel mourned the death of Yitzhak Rabin, it seemed the process would continue unabated. Everyone recognized that Rabin was killed by an extremist who was opposed to the Oslo Peace Accords. It seemed obvious that the best way to honor Rabin's legacy was to continue with the process. But at some point during the seven months following the assassination, Israel's attitude changed. In January 1996, Yasser Arafat officially became president of the Palestinian Authority. And during this period, there were no significant attacks by Palestinian militants against Israel. However, things were different in Lebanon, where Hezbollah militants were shooting rockets into Israel and conducting cross-border raids. Israel launched Operation Grapes of Wrath in April 1996 in retaliation. Over 100 Lebanese civilians were killed in this operation. That spring, elections in Israel brought the right-wing Likud party to power. Benjamin Netanyahu, one of Israel's foremost war hawks, became the new prime minister. Israel's new government immediately applied the brakes to the peace process. Netanyahu's government announced plans to build new settlements in East Jerusalem and expand existing ones. In Gaza, 
The border wall was completed while a bunch of new security checkpoints were created in the West Bank. As the Israeli position hardened, Hamas stepped up its operations. This led to responses from Israel triggering further actions by Hamas resulting in a vicious cycle. American President Bill Clinton, mired in his own scandals at home, scrambled to save the peace process that he'd overseen. Together with King Hussein of Jordan, they convinced Yasser Arafat and Benjamin Netanyahu to resume talks and hopefully find a way forward. This initiative led to the Y River Memorandum. In this new round of talks, Israel agreed to transfer more territory in the West Bank to the PA. This basically entailed shifting land from Area C to Area B and from Area B to Area A. In return, the PA was to take a much stronger stance against military activity originating from within its territories. As the millennium drew to a close, it was looking like peace just might have a chance and the two-state solution was the key. In 1999, the European Union officially recognized the right of the Palestinian people to their own state. That spring, Israel voted in a new government. Ehud Barak of the center-left party became the new Israeli prime minister, fueling hopes the Oslo Accords might be revived. The death of Jordan's King Hussein later that year was a point of concern. He had often worked as an intermediary between the PLO and the Israeli government. But Hussein was succeeded by his son Abdullah, who seemed intent on carrying on his father's role. But then, the year 2000 came, and George W. Bush was elected President of the United States. President Bush was a Christian fundamentalist and was not as devoted to the peace process as his challenger, Vice President Al Gore, might have been. This was a concern to those who supported the peace process, but not as worrisome as the political situation in Israel. The Likud party was staging a comeback in Israel, gearing up for elections the following year, and they were led by none other than the butcher of Beirut, Ariel Sharon. In the next episode, we'll discuss the origins of the Second Intifada and the fallout from the 9-11 attacks. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the hashtag Islamic History. 
Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Saroche for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Four Deaths Over the next two years, four important individuals died, opening up new opportunities for Salahuddin. The first death was that of the Abbasid Caliph al-Mustadi in March 1180. Al-Mustadi was the Caliph when Salahuddin overthrew the Fatimids of Egypt and the two men had developed a good relationship. Al-Mustadi was succeeded by his ambitious son, An-Nasir, who had dreams of rebuilding the Abbasid Empire. For generations, the Abbasids had been the pawns of more powerful Islamic states, most recently the Seljuk Empire. As such, the Abbasid Caliph was recognized as the spiritual head of the Muslim world, but had very little true power. At this time in history, Abbasid authority was limited to Baghdad and its immediate surroundings. This arrangement had created a deep resentment between the Arab Abbasids and the Turkish Seljuks. Naturally, Caliph al-Nasir was uneasy with Kilij Arslan's growth in Anatolia. Salahuddin knew this and he hoped to take advantage of it. The second major death was that of Emperor Manuel I Komnenos of the Byzantine Empire in September 1180. Manuel's death led to a succession crisis in Constantinople, further weakening the empire. Emperor Manuel was succeeded by his 11-year-old son, Alexios II Komnenos. The new emperor's mother was Maria of Antioch, whom Manuel had married to forge closer ties with the Franks. This was discussed in episode 11 of this series. Since Alexios was still a minor, his mother would rule in his stead until he came of age. But Empress Maria was a Catholic, and the Orthodox Christians of Constantinople did not like this arrangement at all. Two years later, Alexios was overthrown by his cousin, Andronicus Komnenos. With Andronicus's rise to power, the tension between the Greek-speaking Orthodox and the Latin-speaking Catholics boiled over. The Greeks were in the majority and slaughtered thousands of Catholics in Constantinople. Emperor Andronicus did not authorize the massacre, but he did not stop it either. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, which was Catholic, blamed Andronicus for the massacre and cut ties with the Byzantines. Andronicus returned the favor by signing a peace treaty with Salahuddin.